Hey, welcome back to ViewCast. This is episode four, and for this episode, I sat down with Dr. Joshua Woods. Dr. Woods is a psychology professor here at Grandview, and we had some really interesting conversations. One of the things that we started right off talking about is ASMR. It's also known as Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. Super uh, new thing, up and coming, uh, really popular on YouTube, and uh, that's right where we start off. So I hope you enjoy it. Here's episode four of ViewCast. I, I just want to know what is this thing that is ASMR, and I think there's no real answer to it, but you, a psychology expert, I think you have more insight than the average person. So what, what have you found from this? So I like to keep an open mind with anything like this. And there's oftentimes, you know, new fads or new ideas that will sort of come up, um, especially in terms of psychological phenomena. Hypnosis is a great example of something that people can kind of run with and maybe take it to in places that it was never intended to be. Um, and yet, as a cognitive psychologist, I've learned to keep an open mind because, I, you know, my research is about false memory. We are constantly getting people in my lab to remember things that didn't happen. And so I've learned that our mind is uh, the malleability of what is real um, is a, you know, a, a real factor in our mind. And we have a tendency to just to believe whatever I see in front of me is real. And something like ASMR is pushing the boundary of that because how could something that you're seeing or hearing give you physiological reactions on the back of your neck and yet there seems to be um, predictable ways that you can see this happen um, you know in one of the research papers I came across you know when it's both visually and auditorily uh, stimulating it's far more likely for somebody with ASMR um, to you know um, say that they had that kind of a response where if it's just visual or if it's just auditory then it's less likely and so when you can do those kinds of manipulations and see a change uh, for me as a cognitive psychologist that tells me there's something here we just need to approach it from a scientific perspective and with something like ASMR obviously there's a lot of a uh, lot of naysayers and like there's reason to be skeptical we sat there and we watched a few of these videos and it's grown in popularity on platforms like YouTube because uh, you can upload a video where you can achieve both the audio and the visual stimulation. But I feel like it's kind of been hijacked by um, uh, YouTubers, celebrities, people who want to make a career out of it or, what, or whatever it is. But you were saying how uh, you were talking to someone younger and it has a negative connotation the idea of ASMR, but in reality, the research says that this is something that could be effective in treating um, mental illnesses. Right, yeah, so, you know, some of the videos, when you come across them, there's a sexual association with it, a clear sexual association with it, a, an attractive, you know, young woman with red lipstick doing, you know, making some very I don't know, whispering sounds in the ears. You're listening exactly. to my ears. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, and that creates these huge hits and these huge views. And that's, you know, I was telling you about my nephew who I asked about just trying to get a, you know, sort of an anecdotal, you know, perspective of a young kid who spends a lot of time on the internet. And 
you know, he just kind of rolled his eyes and was like, oh, you know, that's, I've heard of it, but it's, you know, it's a silly thing. Um, granted, I asked him about it in front of his dad, so maybe there's some part <laughs> to that. Um, but as you said, then there it does seem to be something truly legitimate about it. And when you're talking about treating depression, um, there's a lot of the videos that I came across where I can see where it would be because it's an immersive experience. I mean, one of the things that when I teach about sensation and perception, which is a big area in cognitive psychology, is just listening to this radio. I mean, the, <laughs> the science behind what is going on between the, you know, the transmission of my vocal cords and your vocal cords into a microphone that gets turned into electrical you know, pulses that gets recorded that then gets put output into somebody else's ear at a different time in a different place. Um, and all of the reactions that's happening just from the vibrations of their their speakers into their ears. And then that gets, you know, the, the words transduction, it gets transducted into um, this these neural impulses and all of the steps from us sitting here talking to them hearing and it becoming an experience for them. All of that is this, there's so many different steps that there's it creates this I guess it's easy for me to understand why you would experience something from something that's highly immersive auditorily, something that you're hearing something and it's very rich in auditory detail. Of course, that's going to be, you're going to have some sort of a response. It makes me wonder if it's, you know, something that maybe everybody could, for lack of a better word, achieve like ASMR could be maybe available mm -hmm. to everybody in the, in the right situation. That's kind of the language that a lot of these research papers use is yep. people who achieve ASMR. Mm -hmm. Um, there's I think there's something to it and like the fact that when we're talking into these microphones it's different when we put our headphones on and then we can hear our voices going into our headphones in our own brain while we say the words it makes it a little more like as a notch higher than if we didn't have the headphones on you're more in tune with the conversation so like these weird things like what you see and what you hear do more for us than what we really know and I think that's just like a huge testimony to what psychology is right i mean you and i we talked before one of the i've been using this clip in my class forever and i was telling you it it doesn't usually work because you should be listening to headphones and i'm doing it in a lecture but it's called the virtual barbershop mm -hmm. and now it's become this a asmr um thing because it's the reason why we used it in cognitive psychology or a conversation about auditory perception before is because it was illustrating how an auditory immersive environment um i mean the the idea of information or sounds coming from the left or the right and all of the neural processing that has to happen for your brain to get that that can be easily manipulated through some speakers where usually if you're just sitting on a city street and you hear a car zoom by you and you hear it go from your right ear to your left ear you don't think much about it but that entire experience can be completely hijacked through technology and what this is doing is it's just taking it uh, and now I think, you know, I, I think I just mentioned now that that virtual barbershop has become a big video for ASMR because it was already pushing the edge of it. And, and most of the ASMR videos out there are just taking it to the next level and just, you know, making it even more immersive where, like you said, there's the visual, um, the visual nature to the videos as well, which you could listen to without any sound. And they're still kind of interesting to watch, mm -hmm. you know, for a lot of them. Yeah, for sure. Uh, like these are big questions. Uh, there's not a whole lot of practical implication to these questions. Like what does the sound mean? Stuff like that. Uh, if you're a businessman or an accountant, 
they don't mean squat to you. So I guess my question for you is why psychology? What drew you towards these kinds of things? What, what fascinates you about these kinds of things? Yeah, it's a great question, actually. And I, you know, I, the, I'm a psychologist, so I do see the practical implications in everything. I can't, honestly, when we were talking about it the very first time, I didn't, I hadn't brought this up to you before, but uh, my wife and my kids and I, we went to Disney World uh, last winter and uh, there's a ride there, it's called The Bug's Life, and it's very immersive, right? There's so much going on visually, and they've got like kind of these visual illusions, but they, what they really added to it was that you're sitting in a chair that you don't realize that there's speakers built into it, so you can hear the sound almost like you have your very own specific surround sound for each place, right? I had to actually look behind me and look into the chair to figure out, like, how did they do that, you know? But the other part of it was that... Um, they, there was a moment where they like spray water on you. Like there's, a, I think it was a bug that like sneezed or something and they spray water on it to make you feel like you just got sneezed on it. It's really gross, right? And I was loving it. My, my two little girls, that were, they, were, they were freaking out because they felt like the bugs are real. Mm -hmm. But to your point of how is this practical, something Disney has figured out is they have figured out how to do a an experience that is fully immersive tuning into every single one of your senses what if you applied that to advertising what if you applied that to just cinema and movies um but the more that you can engage in other people's senses the more that you are bringing it truly to life for them where it feels like a real life experience so i think it's definitely applicable to things like marketing it may not seem like it on its face but really what it's talking about is it's getting into you know, that, that full immersion, that full experience, where if I see a commercial that kind of makes me laugh or I find it interesting, that's fine. But if I can really get in tune, which is why if you notice most commercials tend to be um, emotionally, um, you know, focused. They're trying to get you to feel something, whether it's really sad or happy, like they try to make you laugh. And that's because they're trying to hijack your brain. And they know that your amygdala, your emotion center, is very much tied to um, the processing centers um, for memory, and so it's same sort of same sort of thing. You're going to remember things more if you feel like you were immersed in that experience. So, I guess I see that about everything, though. I mean, so ASMR, I, I do see it as the possibility for something more practical. I mean, if you could just imagine how to turn this podcast into something that was not just auditory, which I know we did that with television, but now it's funny we're moving back to podcasts mm. because there's something more granular something grainier about a podcast and a you know a conversation between two people that's rather than too much distraction so maybe you know it's it's kind of funny it works both ways i remember like two summers ago it, it might still be playing i haven't listened to the radio in forever but there was a radio ad advertisement for radio advertisements and it's like this is the sticky medium <laughs> This is where you learn things, <laughs> right. listening, you yeah. know, and it's so true. And of all the radio ads that I've heard in my life, that one has stuck with me for some reason. And it's probably because of the way that the person was speaking. Right. And it, it was probably done by some scientists who said this when it sounds like this, people are more likely to remember. And that's kind of where I fall with the ASMR stuff is if there's certain sounds that can trick your brain into feeling a certain way what you said there about marketing and stuff like that is a commercial could put that sound in there at a certain time to make you think a certain way. Mm -hmm. And then we're back at the malleable brain. Mm -hmm. It hears the sound. Oh, better go buy some bounty, uh, right. 
paper towels. Yeah. Right. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And just the way things look too, billboards and commercials, mm -hmm. they obviously have a very specific hierarchy and design to them. Mm -hmm. But you don't the when you look at it, you don't immediately pick that up. Mm -hmm. You you take in what it is. But there is there are very very planned out, very intentional things done and advertisements and stuff like that 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 seep into your brain and they influence you. Right, yeah. You know, I, I really like talking about advertising. I do it in a lot of my classes because, you know, there is absolute intent to them and yet it's it's sort of you you see this in movies as well. Um, but it's like they've figured out how to do something special effects, you know, back before we had um, CGI or, you know, any of the computer graphics or anything like that. Um, but, you know, you having to use your imagination, and all that they're doing is they're playing with the tricks of the mind when they're blowing up a ship or something, and they're actually just blowing up a toy boat or something. Mm. Um, and same thing with marketing. Oftentimes they're doing something, not realizing why it's working. I don't think many advertising agencies would say, well, it's because we're trying to hit into the amygdala. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. um, and, and yet sometimes because of that, they get to it closer or better or they don't get caught up in the science of it. And then it's people like me that love to then break it down and see the science of it. But either way, the reality is, is you're, there's no movie that's not going to be successful um, that doesn't hit at people's emotions. I think it was going back to Disney, I think it was Walt Disney, and I'd, I'd have to look up the quote, but said something to the effect of, you want to make your audience laugh and you want to make them cry in the same, you know, in the same setting or in the same movie or whatever. And it works the same way for advertising. And part of the reason why I'm focused in on that is two things with ASMR. Number one, you're getting a physiological reaction. And number two, it seems to be for people who experience this, uh, as you said, it can be calming and relaxing and possibly a, um, uh, you know, a useful tool for treating depression or, or anxiety disorders or something like that. And when medication only works so well, why not explore it? Why not see if this is something that we could use? I mean, if it's something so easy and so accessible and it does sort of, um, you know, hack the the emotional parts of their brain, the, the wiring of their brain that's leading them to these anxiety disorders and it kind of soothes that out a little bit. Why would we, why would we not explore it thoroughly? So kind of down a similar path, um, there, are, there are all kinds of different ways to treat these mental illnesses. And I think one that has recently been gaining popularity is the use of psychedelic drugs, especially uh, psilocybin, natural psychedelic drug, and treating stuff like PTSD, um, depression, anxiety, and it's, it's really only been used in uh, untre cases that have been deemed untreatable depression. Hmm. And um, landmark studies coming out of uh, Johns Hopkins and Harvard with psilocybin and MDMA. And so y you said you have a little bit of insight on stuff like hallucinations, which these drugs certainly induce. Uh, what, what kind of role do hallucinations play in uh, um, I guess just rewiring or um, altering the brain. Yeah, so I'm not familiar with those drugs uh, per se because it's that's not my area. But what I can tell you is, you know, when I teach about psychedelic drugs in my own classes, um, one of the points that I try to make to them is all that, all that it is is it's a shortcut. It's a chemical shortcut to other experiences that we know our brain is capable of 
But people like Sigmund Freud were obsessed with cocaine. Um, Oliver Sacks, one of the greatest neurologists of our time who just recently passed away, was obsessed with psychedelic, psychedelic drugs. And it was sort of because he'd see his mind get all screwed up and then he'd document it and try to do what is neurologically going on. Now when people use it recreationally, they're unfortunately missing the shortcomings of using a, um, you know, a, a shortcut. Uh, by shortcutting the brain, by short-circuiting the brain. When you are constantly using a shortcut for your, your brain um, in unhealthy ways, then your brain is going to be dependent on those shortcuts. And it's going to, I mean, just practically speaking, why would you go the long way around to happiness if you can get a shortcut to happiness, you know? <clears throat> in terms of hallucinations, to your point, though, um, schizophrenics experience hallucinations. Uh, people who are on psychedelic psychotropic medications, all sorts of them, um, they, they experience hallucinations or sometimes the psychotropic medication tries to, um, counter that either way, the experience of seeing a color or flying in the air or seeing somebody that was dead alive or whatever the hallucination is, um, that's an experience that's happening in your brain. And as a cognitive psychologist, that idea I am sort of obsessed with, and I've kind of already talked about it um, a little bit with you, but it's just that idea that uh, what we believe is real, that is purely dependent on what's going on in our brain. Um, you know, I show students visual illusions all the time. One of the most powerful visual illusions I can show people that really seems to get them confused is this table illusion where when you look at it, it's obvious that they're completely different. One is way longer and the other one is more square. Uh, so one's a rectangle and the other one's a square. And yet, simply just because of the way they're placed next to each other, that's the way they look. But the reality is it's the exact same table. And I have to cut out pieces of paper and have them switch between, or sometimes I'll show them a video of it. But even when I show them a video, they're like, well, that's probably a trick of, a, of the camera. That's a, it's really hard for us to not accept a visual illusion when we know that it's false. And that's literally the same circuitry as any hallucination that a schizophrenic is experiencing. The problem is, is there's our you know, problematic in terms of behavior and, you know, normal behavior and trying to hold down a job and those kinds of things. But this, the, if you could go to a space where you hallucinate, it's temporary and it feels great. I mean, that's what a psychedelic drug is. It's, it's associated with really good feelings. It feels freeing to your brain because you get to experience something you do not get experience any other way. And that's why a lot of neuro, neuro, neurologists from, you know, the famous Oliver Sacks to, you know, one of the basic founding fathers of psychology, Sigmund Freud, you know, significantly explored those types of drugs. And I think once you start talking about these things, you really get into the question of what is real. Because if you're in a hallucinatory state and you see a flying dragon, but that flying dragon isn't there in reality, air quotes on reality, right. um, is it not real because you can't put the dragon in a grocery bag and he doesn't physically exist in in that realm? Or how can you say it's not real when I saw it? I, it was flying right there, mm -hmm. you know? And it's a big question. that, mm -hmm. And honestly, the answer is nobody knows, right? Right. And, you know, you can it, it can easily snowball into a philosophical debate about what's real and what's not. But, you know, the real practical pragmatic part that I take away from that is just the simple idea of the the mind and the brain and the human experience is not what we think it is 
you know, another example that I use in my class that, I mean, I, it, it's mind blowing to me and it was mind blowing to me when I first learned about it. <clears throat> but I think it takes you time to walk on campus or drive your car down the interstate or just get lost in the conversation with friends and then remember this simple fact that you're blind in both of your eyes. You have a gigantic, about the size of your hand, blind spot in both of your eyes. And you have no idea until you do the test. So I could, you know, unless I show you where your blind spot is and everybody has to have a blind spot because you have to have an optic nerve where there's no photoreceptors. You don't know it. You don't believe it. Your mind just sort of fills in the gaps. And so... You know, the idea of what is real, I'm a memory researcher, and we'll, you and I will have a memory about this conversation. And tomorrow, it'll be fairly fresh. A week from now, it'll still feel fairly fresh. And then after that, it'll begin to fade very, very quickly. Um, and it's very possible in 15 years from now, one or both of us will have completely forgotten it would require some sort of trigger. Um, or we could pass each other on the street and completely, you know, miss it where right now that seems absurd of course that couldn't happen right and everybody knows that everybody understands that memory fades but the point is is that if you really spend some time thinking about what you truly remember from a week ago and then think about every week of your entire life I mean what we tend to hold on to in terms of what is real well my memories are real well they fade and they're very um <laughs> they're very malleable as well uh, and they're very open to interpretation. They're they're sort of pieced back together. So, I mean, I do understand the idea of taking a dragon and putting it into a, a, because I can't physically manipulate it, and that's one version of reality, but then there's also sort of the transient version of reality, the idea of um, what is reality over time? What is reality in terms of an experience over, over a lifetime? Mm. And I think that's what psychedelic drugs really gets to. I mean, there is the intangible hallucinations that you experience, but then there's also just the general experience and your memory of that drug and why you would ever want to go back to it and how you get addicted to it or how you can possibly use it to cure other addictions, as you were talking about. Do you have any um, any understanding of nootropics? Is it kind of a, a newer trend? Yeah, I've heard of them. Um, I know, I, you know, I haven't done much reading on them, but it's... It, it has been popping up the last, gosh, I don't know. I think the first time I heard about him was five, five-ish years ago, and it's becoming a hotter topic. Um, absolutely. What, what is it that you know about it? Not a whole lot. Um, I, I've tried them. I've, I've had concussions in the past, and one of the things that doctors kind of, they didn't necessarily like prescribe them or anything, but they say if you're looking for something that helps with cognitive function, these have been uh, put through clinical trials, and uh, these are the results. They improve your uh, word memory. They improve your um, like sentence formulation and the way that the way that you can kind of pull words and put them into a sentence, um, and just overall cognitive function. You know, I think there's a big thing to be said about the placebo effect, and uh, I'm totally on board with the placebo effect. I mean, if if it works, it works, right? And uh, I think that could be a big, big part of these nootropics. But I think it's worth exploring, and I think I'm glad that they're a thing. I'm glad that um, there is a accessible version of something that can maybe improve your brain functionality, and just through natural supplements like that you find in the earth. Right. Yeah. So, and. 
my, my reservation is I haven't read any research papers on it. Um, I can tell you, because there's a lot of nootropics that point to increases in memory, mm. so I can speak a little bit more intelligently on that, and I can tell you the circles, uh, although people, not that I've contributed to these conversations, but I've kind of paid attention to like some of the listservs that I'm a part of, um, when it's come up, in my realm, there is a lot of um, reservation to accept it, of a lot of talks about the placebo effect. And yet, outside of those circles, outside of the memory circles that I'm talking about, um, there is, uh, I have come across a number of times where, on other listservs, where it's like just a general sort of psych teacher listserv and the topic comes up, um, where, you know, there's a little bit more of a pushback, where they say, no, I think there is maybe something to this. Maybe it's more than just the placebo effect. Personally, my opinion on it is, you know, our brain is this incredible thing. It does things poorly sometimes, does some incredible things a lot every single day. Um, logically, it would make sense that we would be able to heighten that a little bit. Um, I don't know that we're there. I think maybe we're just starting to, because we've, uh, I mean, honestly, up to this point, we've either found substances that make us just feel better or maybe dole things out for us maybe um, so that we have to deal with them. Um, or we've tried to use medicine to eliminate things like pain. I mean, people don't think about Tylenol as being a psychotropic medication, but re I mean, pain is a psychological experience, and so it removes the mm -hmm. pain. It's, it's acting on physiological components, but so is every single psychotropic medication. Um, and so, you know, I, I guess I'm open-minded to it, like you said. And if, if there is something that we could use to help people and better people's lives uh, in a way that isn't a shortcut like I was talking about where you're just short-circuiting the brain and so now I'm dependent on the substance. Yeah, I don't know why we wouldn't try to explore it and keep an open mind to it. Okay, now what about something like Adderall or Ritalin, uh, right. one of these actual uh, medicines prescribed by doctors, usually to people who have been diagnosed with uh, hyperactivity disorders or attention deficit disorders, um, I guess my my question with these kinds of things is, uh, is is a fourth grader jittery in class because he has attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or is he jittery in class because he's learning stuff that he doesn't want to learn about, and his brain could be uh, completely focused, locked in on something else? Mm -hmm. So I, um, although in terms of my department, I don't consider myself to be a clinical expert mm. because almost everybody in my department has more clinical experience. I am, it is rare for somebody like myself, a cognitive psych person to have any clinical experience. And I spent about 10 years working on psychiatric units. And I can tell you, I have worked with some kids who there seemed to be something different about in terms of their ability to focus their hyperactivity. I don't know if it's new. I mean, there's some people that have said it has to do with the kinds of foods we eat nowadays, that it has to do with distractions. I don't. I can't tell you what it, what is caused by it. Um, but I worked really closely with Dr. Sasha Kasravi, who heads up the adolescent psychiatric, um, all, all of the adolescent psychiatric services for Mercy Hospital. And I, I know his mind on this, and I, I have to say he's kind of convinced me of it. Now, his the perspective, though, is that those people are few and far between. Like there, those there are kids who are just wired differently, um, but 
there are some kids who, as you just said, that's like you're asking a kid to wake up really early, go and sit down, sit still, don't move. We're going to teach you this thing that you don't want to learn. And if you make any sort of movements, then you're a bad kid. And it's, it's just, it's a weird, in terms of human history and all of the ways that we've tried to learn things and all the ways we've done this thing called childhood, it's literally been like three generations where we've been trying out this experiment. No wonder it's not going very well, right? Mm -hmm. And so I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I, I, of course, I think kids are, you know, I, we are forcing information down their throat and I, in all honesty, I, I don't know. And I, this may be unfair to my colleagues in the, in the education department, so I want to measure my words here. But I don't know how much time and attention is put into, rather than curriculum structure, how is it that we can teach math in a way that makes sense in their world and just bring it into their world, bringing the information into them, their world instead of taking them out of the world and say, sit down, learn these concepts, and I'll talk about apples because apples is better than numbers, I suppose. That's, that t for me, that's different than mm -hmm. us going their way rather than them forcing, you know, being forced to sit down and shut up and listen. Well, I can say from personal experience that all throughout middle school and high school, the math classes, the science classes, uh, the really technical stuff I struggled with. And I, I was probably the kid bouncing his legs and not really paying attention. Um, but the classes like creative writing and the classes like uh, public speaking and uh, introduction to business ethics. I mean, these like these things that are more overarching discussions about uh, ethics and morals and humanity rather than something practical and technical like two plus two and uh, the chemical structure of this. I, w I was never sh I was never unfocused in those classes and classes like philosophy uh, cultural perspe perspectives, those ones I always enjoyed. But whenever it got down to the technical stuff, I, d I didn't enjoy it as much. And I understand the value in being taught those things, and I understand the value of uh, experiencing that. But I wonder if I wonder if there's a way where you can we weed out what someone's interests and their passions are earlier, where you can kind of cater to those in our education system. And it's a huge question, almost. Like, where do you begin? And uh, when you're working with a country with a population of 320 million, it's so hard to implement something like this. Absolutely, yeah. So I can understand all the perspectives, but I also feel like there's a millions and millions of kids out there who are being robbed of their creativity and their, um, their passion for a certain subject because they don't pay attention in this class take him to the doctor, you should probably be on Adderall, go right. back to class. And now, right. I don't want to say it, but you become a little zombie walking in the hallway going class to class. Absolutely, you do. I mean, that's the reality. Anybody who's spent any time around, um, you know, having to use the medication, anybody who they know that's used the medication, it does, it makes you a zombie. And I, I love the question, where do you begin? Because... I, that's it. That's the whole problem. That's the only reason why there, there are so much educational research and psychology and education, how the two topics intertwine together. And basically the conclusion from both is we're doing this way wrong. Um, in rebuttal to that, though, I would say if, if you can only imagine 
you know, if maybe we, if we could only imagine what it must have been like with horses and buggies and where do we begin? How do we even start? The world is set up for one design kind of world. And you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. It'd be complete transformation. And yet, you know, it's funny to hear you listen. I really struggled in classes in like English. And I remember we would spend hours dissecting, oh, captain, my captain and all the different words. And I'm like, I just don't understand it. And, you know, the English teacher saying, well, this is what they're saying. And I'm like, well, why don't they just say that then? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. and what you're speaking to is just the different ways that we're wired up and the different ways that we that we think. And, you know, everybody needs to learn to appreciate poetry and everybody needs to learn the importance of quantitative thinking and that kind of, you know, but when I complete an equation and then everything works out and I, I, it's funny when we're talking about ASMR, I have a physiological response to an equation that works out, which sounds silly to people like my wife who is a dancer, you know, and who loves art. And for her, it's a song, you know, and, you know, or it's a, it's a piece that she sees. And I'm sure for a lot of artists, it's a, it's something on a canvas. And, you know, what you're talking about is the stuff that gets into our mind and into our brain that really brings us alive. And yeah, why don't we have at least some more freedom? Maybe we should start there, start with some more freedom instead of using things like Adderall, which does seem to work. Ritalin and Adderall, I mean, they, when we're talking about some of those drugs that maybe help with focusing, they do. But yet people abuse them because, well, one, they're readily available because it's not hard to get them. Um, all you got to do is say your kid is having a hard time focusing and your general practitioner will probably give them to you. Um, but people end up abusing them because they also have other effects. You know, they can give you a feeling of release and, you know, chill you out a little bit mm-hmm. and make things make your life feel like it's better for a moment. Yeah. So it seems like it'd be easier to just give kids more options and say, Hey, here's a room that's going to be working on creative writing and business ethics. You want to go check out that room or do you want to go into this room? That's about equations. You know, like we should all have some fundamentals, but I don't know why we don't have more freedom. I, I don't think it would be that hard. And yet who's, who's the one to lead the charge, right? right? <laughs> that's the problem. I suppose. Before we wrap this up, uh, I know you got to get out of here shortly um i've got a few questions that i ask everyone who comes on viewcast okay so we all we all encounter things that leave an impact on us whether it be a a book a podcast a movie a tv show something you read so can you think of anything that you've came across recently that you would like to refer other people to check check out and maybe expand their mind a little bit I am obsessed with podcasts. I mean, I my brother got me on them, I don't know, maybe two or three years ago, and I just, every chance I get, I have one in my ear and I'm listening to them. So my favorites, and I, these are probably really common, I guess I don't know how common they are, but Radiolab is one of my all-time favorites. This American Life, of course, is a lot of people's favorites. Revisionist History, even though I'm not a history person, that one blows my mind almost every one of its episodes, Malcolm Gladwell, um, Hidden Brain, Um, I, but I love those stories. I take a lot of that information even into my classrooms because they're always talking about in most of, at least the ones I listen to, they're talking about what they're talking about people. So of course it has to do with psychology, but they're talking about things in psychology, but they have a real practical or real life example or real life situation. Um, so podcasts, absolutely. (laughs) Um, you know, 
in terms of, I was trying to think of if there's like one specific thing that uh, maybe to be had a huge impact on me. And, you know, for me, I, I wasn't a really focused kid either. Uh, I had a hard time focusing. I didn't particularly like school and now it's weird. I work for university. They can't mm. get me to leave, you know. Mm -hmm. And I didn't go to college because uh, I wanted to. I went to college because my dad basically made me because he didn't get a chance to go. And um, I, I, I didn't think I belonged the entire time until I decided that I did. And <laughs> true story, when I'm thinking about those kinds of things, I wish I had a book that I was pointing to that changed my life or you know made me think about the world differently. But the movie Goodwill Hunting... Um, really made me think about the world differently. Now, he's a genius, and so I can't really relate to that part of it, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but rather, it showed me what it must be like to thirst for information. Now, he, he did it on his own because it came easy to him in a sense, but I hadn't really ever thought about that, that you would seek out knowledge and information just because, not because the teacher's telling you you need to read this, not because you know, some education system believes you need to check off these boxes. But learning about the world without any other reward except for the intrinsic, you know, there's a scene where he's talking with his girlfriend and and he, she's like, oh, you studied organic chemistry. And he's like, yeah, a little bit. And she's like, oh, yeah, because people do that. Why not? Why would we not? I mean, we were surrounded by chemistry and organic things. Why wouldn't we all explore it a little bit? And the, I know the answer to it is because you're afraid of the test that comes on the other side of it. And so we've kind of taught ourselves to, I don't know that I want to ask these questions because if I don't understand it, that means I'm dumb. Rather than, hum, I wonder, I wonder what this path looks like. I wonder what, I wonder what it'd look like if I walked down that road just a little bit. And that's all he does throughout the entire movie. So, um, explore everything. Absolutely, basically what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I like it. I, I think people need to hear that. Yeah. I don't think people explore enough things. And I mean. Me, me too. I'm definitely uh, one of those people who doesn't. But uh, I, I try to make it a point, but it's hard. There's a lot of things out there to there explore. Is. <laughs> there is. But it's good to be curious in general and a lot, let your curiosity kind of run, you yeah. know, and be understand that it's okay to be curious and to not always have all the answers and to not have to fully understand a subject to, you know, to be curious about it. All right. Last thing I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do with you is, Something I call rattle them off, right? Okay. I got six questions here. Really simple. <laughs> Probably not anything to do with psychology. Okay. Maybe a little bit. Maybe we'll be able to figure out who you are just off of these six questions. Okay. All right. uh, book or article? Book. Netflix or cable? Netflix. Pizza or pasta? Pizza. Spring or fall? Fall. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Cowboys or aliens? I'm going to go with aliens. Yeah, we got it. Now we know exactly who you are from <laughs> those like six it. questions. That's, right. that, that's the personality test. <laughs> I like it. That's good. Yeah, it does, though. It gives you some insight, right? Yeah, I love it. Definitely. Good All stuff. right, cool. Well, thanks for doing this. I can't wait to get people to listen to this. I hope they uh, make it all the way through and hear some of the cool stuff that we got to talk about. So seriously, thanks again. Thanks for having me.